Thank you for allowing me to do that. I really appreciate that. Hey, those of you that came in, you should have got your communion elements. We're going to be, be doing communion at the end of the message today. At the end of the message, if you did not get an element, then at the end, we'll give you a chance to raise your hand and our ushers will, will head your way and make sure that you get those if you want to take advantage of communion this weekend. And also, I just wanted to talk about something. That I'm, I'm two, uh, two more things I'm really excited about. Uh, uh, first of all, Pastor Dave, our lead pastor, will be with us next Sunday on the 15th. This will be his first time speaking here at the Patterson campus since we've been back in this building. And so I'm really excited about that. I invited him to come. It sounds, it sounds weird. I had to invite the lead pastor to come, but I did. I said, hey man, we, I want you to come and see, come see the campus, come see the Patterson campus. And I want you to, to pour into the people of Patterson. So he will be here next Sunday. And I'm really excited. You're going to love Pastor Dave if you've never met him, but Pastor Dave is the lead pastor of New Life. And so that's why I introduced myself as Jeremy being the campus pastor because I oversee this campus, but Pastor Dave is the CEO. And so he will be here next week, and I'm really excited about having him here. And so we, um, uh, one of the things that we want to say, if you're a guest here, then please do not leave we ha until we give you a gift. If this is your first time here, on your way out, when you go through those double doors, you're going to see a bookshelf there on your left, and you'll see some uh, mugs there, some, uh, some coffee mugs that have our little emblem on it. Make sure you grab one of those. That is our gift to you for being a guest. And if you are here this morning for the first time and you do not have a home church, then we want to say to you, welcome home. All right, awesome. Uh, and before you leave, all the moms, we have a gift for you too. Uh, before you leave, we, we have uh, little cookies made. It's got the little new life uh, in on it. So they're really good. Anna has already eaten how many? Have you? None? Oh, okay. So Anna said they're really good. So if, anyone, if any of you ladies don't get one, it's because Anna ate your cookie. Um, and so anyway, uh, on the way out, make sure you ladies grab a cookie. It's just a little gift that we have for you to say happy Mother's Day. And they're all for you. Do not share unless you want to share them with me. That's okay too. All right. Uh, but one last thing before we jump into the message, uh, we're going to be in the gospel of Matthew today, chapter 20. If you want to go ahead and turn in your Bibles there, we're going to be reading out of the message translation uh, like we did last week. So if you have the New Living or the NIV, just try to uh, follow along the best you can. Or you can just download, if you have the Bible app, just go to the message translation, Matthew chapter 20. But before we go into it, I'm really, really excited about something that we're going to be doing here in two weeks. On Sunday, May the 22nd, we have a workshop that we're going to be offering uh, to the people of this campus. And I want to set it up by saying this, that over the last 20 to 30 years since New Life has been in existence, we do boot camps constantly. We do marriage boot camps because we care about your marriage. We do, finance, we do um, uh, parenting boot camps because we care about your, uh, our, our parenting and being, being better parents. We do uh, things like divorce care and grief share, celebrate recovery. We have all these programs and all these boot camps that we offer because we want to continue investing into people. And another thing that we've done over at the Turlock campus for the last couple of decades is Financial Peace University by Dave Ramsey. But uh, instead of doing that here at this campus, we've offered something else. So we have a, we have a gentleman that, that attends our campus. Larry, stand up back there. Larry uh, works for Thrivent, and he's part of our, he's part of our men's leadership team here uh, at, the, at the campus. He works for a company called Thrivent, and he's going to be doing a boot camp two weeks from now on the 22nd over in the multipurpose room at 12.15 in the afternoon. This is absolutely free. It doesn't cost you a dime. We're not trying to sell anything. You don't have to buy anything. This is a free resource that Larry and his company wants to offer for us uh, because we look at our statistics, our, our financial statistics, not here at this campus, but around the country, and it's pretty scary. 
that 75% of Americans live paycheck to paycheck. 75% of, of Americans are one paycheck away from losing something if they have to file bankruptcy. Only 32% of people live on a budget. We know that most people have no idea what they would do if a financial crisis or an emergency hit them. And so we want to invest into our people that way too, because we care about you spiritually. We care about you emotionally and mentally. We care about your marriages and your parenting, like I said. And we also care about your finances because no one in our country, barely anyone in our country has breathing room. We can't breathe financially. We're so strapped down. And so... Um, uh, uh, Larry has an amazing program, program. It's called Money Canvas. And so he's going to be doing that free on the 22nd, two weeks from today. And he's also going to cater lunch that day as well. So if you want to be a part of that, make sure you go see Larry right after he's got a little table set up in the lobby. Go up and go up to him and just say, hey, sign me up. If you're a couple, it's great to go through as a couple. If you're single, it's great as well. If you're a student, no matter what your age, no matter where you are demographically, this is going to be good uh, for you. So make sure you go see uh, Larry at the end of service and get signed up for that. Free lunch, and it's on the 22nd. It's only about 90 minutes. Uh, you basically are getting four or five weeks of, of education from, uh, from a financial standpoint in, a, in 90 minutes. So it's free. Take advantage of that, okay? All right, Matthew chapter 20. Let's dive into this. Last week, we kicked off our, our current series that we're in called uh, Messy Faith. And we began by talking about how messy our lives can be and how we sometimes bring the messiness of who we are into this relationship with a perfect and all-loving God. And that's what he wants us to do. He wants us to come to him however messy we are. He wants us to come to him exactly the way that we are so that he can begin this transformation in our lives. And in our relationship with him, let's admit it, we tend to make it a little messy as well. Our messiness doesn't just disappear overnight when we decide to trust in Jesus, but it does put us in this posture of humility with the one who created us. It's kind of like our relationship with each other. Now think about it, whether, whether you're married or whether you're dating, think about your life before you met that person. Your life most likely had its own dysfunction, its own highs and lows, its own ugliness and selfishness, its own perspectives, its own values and perceptions that you've groomed over the years, either because you learned those uh, life behaviors or uh, maybe it's from a family of origin, maybe a cultural background. And then you took the messiness of your life and then combined it with the messiness of theirs. And we wonder, why do, why do I have problems in my marriage? Well, it's because we both brought our messiness to this union. And just because you found your spouse or your boyfriend or your girlfriend, that dream job, that awesome house and that cool car, had beautiful kids and everything seems like your life should be great, but it doesn't mean that it's not messy. Our messiness doesn't suddenly disappear when our life seems settled. <laughs> it's messy. I have messy parts of me. You have messy parts of you. Miss Anna and Pastor Tito have messy parts of them. Our New Life staff and our elder board have messy parts of them. We all have these dysfunctional parts of our lives that are just messy that we're supposed to consistently be working on, right? And that's why we tell anyone who comes here that they say, I just don't feel worthy to come to church because of my past or because of my relationship or my non-relationship with Jesus. That's why we say, hey, welcome to the club. This is exactly where you belong. 
Because our relationship is this ongoing journey every single day as we draw closer and closer in Jesus to Jesus. Because would he like for us to be perfect? Of course. But we know that because of our sin and our tendency and our temptation to sin, that that's just not possible. So instead, Jesus is asking us to at least be in the process of pursuing holiness, to move forward through all the messiness of our lives so that we can be drawn closer to him. It's another reason why we adopted the mission statement here for new life in loving people one step closer to Jesus because we understand and we realize that our journey with Jesus can sometimes be a messy process. So since today is Mother's Day and we're in this current series called Messy Faith, I wanted to do my best and kind of combine the two by sharing about a mother in Scripture who discovered her own messiness in following Jesus and what you and I can learn from her experience. We're going to be reading out of Matthew chapter 20, starting in verse 20 through 28. It was about that time that the mother of the Zebedee brothers came with her two sons and knelt before Jesus with a request. Now, just to set it up a little bit, these were the two boys that Jesus was walking along and said, brothers, come follow me. And they literally abandoned what they were doing with their father as fishermen to go and follow Jesus. So these are the Zebedee's sons. What do you want? Jesus asked. She said, give your word that these two sons of mine will be awarded the highest places of honor in your kingdom. One at your right hand, one at your left hand. And Jesus responded, you have no idea what you're asking. And he said to James and John, the boys, are you capable of drinking the cup that I'm about to drink? And they said, sure, why not? Jesus said, oh, come to think of it, you are going to drink my cup. But as to awarding places of honor, that's not my business. My father is taking care of that. When the 10 others heard about this, the other disciples, they lost their tempers, thoroughly disgusted with the two brothers. All right. Relational problems go all the way back. So when you think, man, these were the 12 disciples, these guys walked on water. No, these guys were hand picked by Jesus and here they are thoroughly disgusted with each other. That's how messy this is. So Jesus got them together to settle things down. He said, you've observed how godless rulers throw their weight around, how quickly a little power goes to their heads. It's not gonna be that way with you. Whoever wants to be great must become a servant. Whoever wants to be first among you must be your slave. That is what the son of man has done. Listen to this. He came to serve, not be served. And then to give away his life in exchange for the many who are held hostage. We bow your heads and pray. Father, thank you for your word. I pray, God, that you will just lead us in drawing closer to you through what we learned today. Father, speak your words through your servant to your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, let me ask you, have you ever had your mom and dad mom or dad, come to your rescue when they shouldn't have? <laughs> Maybe they tried to put you in a position that you look back now and you think, eh, I, wasn't, I wasn't right for that position. I wasn't ready for that position. I did not deserve that. Maybe they tried to advance you in a school or advance you in a grade in school before you really felt like you were ready. Maybe they helped you get a job that you know that you weren't qualified for when you were a teenager. When your dad comes up and says, oh, yeah, my son, yeah, he can take, all, he can take apart that flux capacitor. He's like, Papa, I'm 10. Maybe, they, maybe your parents had to have a conversation with a neighbor who wanted to press charges against you for something you did, and your mom and dad talked them out of it. 
Maybe the fact that you and your mom hid the fact that you had a fender bender in dad's car. Hopefully dad won't notice that one. (laughs) Sometimes parents are really good at paving the way for their children. And sometimes they're really good at enabling their children. Sometimes they're really good at rescuing their children. I remember when Janet and I first began dating back in 1992. Back in 1992, she and I first began dating. She'd only lived in Tennessee about a year. She was originally from Florida. And while I was at her house, the phone rang and she picked it up. And um, they were inviting her to come back down to Florida to go to some Christian dance uh, with, a, with a guy friend of hers from Florida. Sounds pretty innocent, right? Except the call came from his parents. And he's an adult, all right, 19 years old, and his mom and dad are calling for him to talk to Janet to come down there and go to some dance with him. Super weird, I think. It's just awkward. But as parents, we tend to be pretty... By the way, Janet didn't go, all right? She was with me, all right? <laughs> That's all needed to be said. She looked, looked at the phone, looked at me, and said, she, all right. Uh, but as parents, we tend to be pretty good at that, don't we? I mean, after all, we want the best for our kids, we want to protect them as long as we can. We, we don't want them to suffer. We don't want them to struggle. It feels good to see our children recognized, to be given awards, to be celebrated. We want them to be included. We want them to be praised. We love that about our children. We don't want them pushed aside. We don't want to see our kids marginalized. I mean, as, as a parent, when I saw my kids marginalized, and probably you as a, as a parent, as well, especially all you mama bears out there, you see your kids being pushed aside and being marginalized, what, that thing that rises up on the inside of you. And as a parent of four, I believe this is pretty normal. They're, they're, th- those are natural desires for our children. And that's exactly what this mother's doing in the scene. No one can blame her for wanting the best for her boys. I mean, after all, Jesus is the one that asked these two men to follow him, and they probably left the family business to do so. So, since I've got the attention of the creator of the universe, this person who's calling themselves God, after pulling my boys away from my husband and I, I'm going to take advantage of this opportunity and make a big request. I mean, all he can do is say no, right? The only thing about this big ask for her boys is that she didn't really realize, she didn't realize what she was asking. She was asking a very earthly question of this physical world for an eternal favor in the spiritual life the life after this one. And that's why Jesus said to her, you have no idea what you're asking. In other words, you're asking me something for which it's impossible for you to understand and comprehend. There's so much spiritual depth in this question because you haven't seen my father's kingdom. And if you could see the throne on which one day I will once again take my seat, you would probably sit back and go, oh, never mind. That's a lot bigger ask than what I thought. Again, it's that struggle between our flesh and our spirit. What we want versus what God wants. What we desire versus what God desires for us. Our will versus God's will. We think we want what we see in the temporal, but God's plan for us goes much further than that. It's much bigger than that. So today, I don't want to focus so much on the messiness of mama's question, but rather the messiness of the heart and the desire and the motive behind the question. Because as a mother, her question and the motive behind the question was spot on as mama bear. But as a follower of Jesus, it's an example of how messy our motives can be when we have our own questions for God. 
I think that before this message is over, you're going to see yourself relating to this mother in more than one way. So there's a few things from this mom's messy perception of her relationship with Jesus that I believe you and I can learn in our own messy relationship with Jesus. So here's, here are some lessons we can learn, four, four lessons we can learn. Lesson number one, I can learn that God is in control. I can learn that God is in control. So I'm going to take verse 20 and kind of break it down uh, phrase by phrase. Okay, so the, ver- the first part of 20. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus. Okay, there's a reason why she came to Jesus. That word came here is a common word that we use every single day that means coming and going. But a lot of times in scripture, it often refers to approaching someone who has greater authority than me, who has greater power than me. And then either making a request of that person or just simply submitting myself to that person. Think about Joseph of Arimathea. He's the one who came to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus after it was taken off the cross. Think about Moses when he saw the burning bush. The Bible says that he came to the bush and met with God. We read in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, and it is impossible to please God without faith. Anyone who wants to come to him must believe that God exists and that he rewards those who what? Sincerely seek him. Are we sincerely seeking God? And are we sincerely seeking him because we know that he's in control? The mother of James and John knew exactly who was in charge. And if she's thinking like the disciples, maybe she even believed that Jesus was there to start his revolt against the Roman army, and he was going to establish his kingdom right there in the physical in Israel. So Jesus would definitely be in charge, right, if that's why he's here? So I'm going straight to the top. I'm going straight to the one who is in charge. So she approached Jesus with her request, going straight to the top. Have you ever had to call customer service for anything? A complete waste of time. It's so frustrating. It could be a nightmare. Janet and I play rock, paper, scissors for who has to make the next phone call to anyone in customer service. I mean, just trying to talk to a real person, all right, is almost impossible anymore. And it's so frustrating. All the transfers from this department to this department and then press the following numbers for these items and then to repeat these items, press nine. And then we want to speak to an operator and it says to speak to an operator, say operator. And you're screaming operator because you just want to talk to a real person. And then all that does is just send you back to the selection list. Isn't that great? (laughs) And you're crying saying, I just want to talk to a real person. Send me to someone in charge. You know, when you're trying to get things done, you're like, let me talk to your manager. Okay, now let me talk to your manager. You just keep going up the ladder. This mother knew exactly who was in charge. And that's the one that she went to. So the first lesson we can learn from this mother is to realize who's ultimately in control of our request. Lesson number two, I can learn humility. So she came to Jesus, the next two words, kneeling down. I can learn humility. The word for kneeling down here in the NIV is usually translated as worshiped. For example, the wise men told Herod that they had come to worship the one born king of the Jews. Their intent was to find Jesus and to kneel down before him. That's what they meant when they said worship. That's the kind of humility that this woman, this mom was showing Jesus. Her act of worshiping or kneeling gives us a picture of worship. This mom is humbling herself before Jesus, being an example to her adult children who were there with her. 
when Janet and I first had Caleb, our oldest, he's 26 now, but we agreed that she would stay at home until all of our children started school. So I say that looking back, Janet was an amazing domestic engineer for 20 years as she poured into our children. And because of this, she had enormous influence over all four of our babies until they started school. And during this particular time in our text today, mothers were the number one influence over their children. It was during these early years that they learned how to relate to people and how to accept authority, how to talk with people, how to walk and how to act, how to conduct themselves and so many other things. These were critical years for a toddler who's like a sponge taking in all their seeing and all their hearing. It's a mother who's humbling herself before God and accepting this important task of teaching and guiding and influencing her children to do the same, which could potentially affect how they relate to Jesus for the rest of their lives. I met with a family here yesterday who actually lost their mother last week. And so we were uh, getting together and kind of planning out some of the memorial service. And I was really um, impacted by something that the boy said, the son And he said, my mom taught me how to be a man. My mom taught me how to respect women. My mom taught me how to be a husband. My mom taught me how to ride motorcycles and turn a wrench. It was like, what an amazing thing for a man to say about his mother. But what about us? When we have the scene of this mother kneeling before Jesus, asking her question, Have we ever been so concerned with our petition, so desperate and so passionate for getting our need met that we're willing to humble ourselves and kneel before Jesus? And I'm not actually talking about physically kneeling down, but I'm talking about coming to God with such a surrendered heart of humility that we ask him our questions, our tough questions, our messy questions. Do we present an attitude of humility and respect? Because I think it's pretty amazing that when we look at our circumstances, when we look at our own issues, when we look at our own problems, when we look at our own conflicts, how quickly those things will put us on our knees before God, especially when it comes to our children, when our life is really messy, when we realize that we've distanced ourselves from God a bit, but he didn't push us away. We somehow pushed him away. Because in those moments where we tend to push God away from us, it's because we're in that season of, I want to do what I want to do. I want it to be my way. And so if I push God away just a little bit further, maybe he won't see that I'm trying to do things my way. And the whole time God's saying, I still see you. (laughs) I still see you in all your messiness. And I still love you. So a second lesson we can learn from this mom is humility before God. A third thing, a third lesson we can learn from this mother is this. I can ask God what's on my heart. I can ask God what's on my heart. Continuing in verse 20, kneeling down, she asked him a favor. What do you want? Jesus asked. She said, give your word that these two sons of mine will be awarded the highest places of honor in your kingdom, one at your right hand, one at your left hand. Notice. Notice that when she comes to Jesus, the creator of the universe, God in the flesh, when she comes with a humble attitude, God asks her, what do you want? What is it you want from me? Remember, like we said, this is the son of God. He's concerned about what we want because he spoke to her first and asked her, what do you want? 
But before he asked her that question, she put herself in this posture of humility to recognize that he's in control and that I'm willing to be humble in your presence. He wants us to tell him our heart, even if it's not the most appropriate request. I think this is the mom who was concerned for her boys. I mean, even though they're adults, they left the family business. Like we said earlier, the family fishing business that they were eventually supposed to take over because traditionally and historically, that's what happened in the Jewish tradition. Then it was a prominent business at that. We see other scripture in the New Testament that talks about this man, Zebedee, and his two sons having hired fishermen and having two boats. This was extremely rare. This was a pretty prestigious business. And these two sons left this successful family business to follow Jesus. And I think she capitalized on this moment. You took my boys. Now I'm going to ask a big ask of you. So it shows that she knew of Jesus, but did she really know Jesus? I think a lot of times we know of Jesus, but we don't really know Jesus. But maybe she just wants to know that her sons are going to be okay. I mean, after all, if he is there to lead a revolt against the Roman Empire, she wants to know that her sons are going to be okay. Do they have a future with you, Jesus? This would concern and give anxiety to any of us as parents. I know it was for Janet and I. I mean, at different times in the ministry, when I look back and I think about all the times, any time that we were about to leave one church and go to another as we felt like God was, was, was taking us on this journey, our kids were a major part of our discussion. They were a major part of our decision. And we would ask questions like, are they going to be okay? Are they going to be okay mentally and emotionally and relationally? Are, what are the schools like? Are the schools good? What's the community like? Is it a safe community? Will our kids be accepted being from out of town? I mean, do they have sports? Does, does the church we're going to have a, a youth group, a thriving youth group? Those questions were important for us to at least put on the table, if not try to even, even try to get an answer to. And trusting Jesus with all of our moves have been messy, really messy. Because Jan and I, we would say things like, hey, God's in control. God's got our backs. I mean, he knew about this move before we did. God would never let anything happen to us. I mean, we have faith in God's protection. We would say all of the, the famous Christian cliches that we're supposed to say. But did we really believe it? I mean, I think so. We're here. <laughs> so I think we believed it in somewhat. This is so messy. That's, that's why when we ask these kinds of questions. This mother asked Jesus what was on her heart. She said, Jesus, my boys have left the family business to follow you. Can you at least give me some kind of assurance that they're going to be okay? That they're going to be right beside you in your kingdom. She asks what's on her heart. She's honest and she's vulnerable and she's transparent. And I think that's a lot of our problems today. I think we come to Jesus and we're not really honest about what we're really trying to ask even though he knows, <laughs> because we can't hide anything from him. And here's this woman in all of her vulnerability kneeling down saying, this is what I want. This is my heart. I want to make sure that my boys are taken care of. And that's what Jesus wants for us, because I think a lot of times we come to God and we just pretend, right? We just say all the things that we think God wants to hear. Trying to fool God, but when we try to fool God, we're really just fooling ourselves. God wants us to be honest 
with him. And when we are, we can be more honest with ourselves. And that's when God can really speak to us and work in our lives in a very real way, when we're honest and transparent with what we're going through and our asks. And it's at this point in the story that Jesus directs his attention away from mama and over to James and John. We don't hear any other response or questions coming from mom. I think from that, we can learn this, that maybe she trusted in what Jesus said. So here's your last lesson for the, for the weekend. I can trust what Jesus says. I can trust what Jesus says. Skip it down to verse 22. You don't know what you are asking. I believe in most of our prayers, most of our requests that we make before God, especially in situations that we have zero control or that maybe issues that are just so heavy in our spirit, so heavy in our lives, a lot of times we ask questions because we don't have all the information. We don't know what God knows. This woman asked this question not knowing any. That's why I said, you, don't, you have no idea what you're asking me. But we ask our questions because we think with our very worldly mind what we want the answer to be. We don't know what God knows. We certainly don't know what our request might mean for our future or for the future of someone else, and that's messy. I mean, we think we know what the outcome should be, but we don't really know. A loved one gets uh, a serious illness or is involved in a car accident, and we pray that God will spare their lives because that's what we want, and that's not a selfish prayer. That's an okay pray, prayer to pray. I've prayed that many, many times. It's okay to pray those kinds of prayers. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. We should ask God what's on our hearts. However, can we accept God's response? Are we willing to accept God's response? Because we don't know what it may lead to. And again, that's messy. Jesus said to the boys of this mother, James and John, can you drink from the cup I'm going to drink? He's talking about the suffering that he's going to go through. We can, they answered, <laughs> which I... It leads me to believe that they really didn't understand the question because they answered so quickly without processing through it. And then Jesus said, you know what? Come to think about it. You are going to drink from that cup. Jesus knew their future. Jesus knew that they were going to be persecuted for following him. We see later in scripture that, that James was eventually killed for following Jesus, that John was eventually exiled on an island for following Jesus. But then he ends with this. Jesus says this, but as to awarding places of honor, that's not my business. My father is taking care of that. It wasn't the position of Jesus to grant this. And we know that earlier we read in scripture that he had already told James and John who his father was. So maybe this mom is in the background now starting to put some of the pieces of the puzzle together. Because like I said, we don't have any record of her saying much after Jesus says these things to her boys. So imagine this scene. Imagine this scene that Jesus basically looked at these two young men, most likely around the age of 20, and he just told them that they were going to be persecuted for following him. And mom was right there. She heard him say this to her boys. The same mama bear who was jockeying for position for her two boys just 60 seconds earlier is now standing there in silence because she just heard what her question was going to cost her. In faith family, that's messy. The mother's name 
was Salome. And Bible scholars actually believe that this could be the same uh, Salome that was one of the women who came to the tomb with spices to put on the dead body of Jesus. If that's the case, that's pretty awesome. (laughs) Then potentially this same mother who is making this crazy request for her sons was on the scenes of the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Just because she had a crazy and messy question didn't mean she didn't believe. In fact, I think her messy question complemented her belief in who Jesus was. So what does that say to us? What does that say to you and for me? It communicates to us that it's okay to ask God our messy questions. You have questions. I have questions. And God is big enough to handle your questions. God's big enough to handle your doubt. God's big enough to handle any situation you're going through. God's even big enough to handle your expectations because this woman come to Jesus kneeling down and ask a big request. Her expectation was that my two boys are going to sit beside you in your kingdom. That's a pretty big expectation. So it's okay to God. It's okay if you go to him with your questions. We've said this before. He knows your thoughts anyway. He knows your questions even before you ask. So why not ask him? We may not like the answer. Sometimes his answer is silence. Sometimes his answer is no. But God knows what's best for us. With your messy questions, take them to a perfect God and he'll help you. At this time, we're going to do communion. I've asked um, Jacob and Danielle and Tito to come up and lead us in that last song. As they're coming, go ahead and you can take, take your elements out. If you did not get communion element, slip your hand up. Our ushers will make their way to you. We have some back there in the back. Keep your hand up high, please, so that our ushers can see you. Thank you. Let me tell you another cool story about James and John. So we're about to take communion, and uh, the communion represents what they did at the, the Last Supper on the night that Jesus was betrayed. And so imagine yourself in this room with Jesus and the other disciples and whoever else was in this room, and they just eat dinner together. They're, they're, one, one translation said that Jesus was reclined back and just having just listening to the conversations of the disciples, spending those last hours with the ones that he loves the most because he knew that 24 hours later, what was coming. So they just eat dinner. He washes the feet of the disciples. He sends Judas away to go do what he thought he needed to do by betraying Jesus. And then as they separate, Jesus walks out of the city into what's called the Garden of Gethsemane that's still there today. And when he goes with him, I love this. I love this. Do you know who he takes with him? Three guys. Peter, of course, Peter. Peter's always around. He couldn't get rid of Peter. The other two, James and John. These two boys. Could have taken anyone, any, any of the other nine, because Judas leaves. 
but he takes Peter, James, and John. Imagine being with the creator of the universe, with the son of the living God, and for his final prayer with his father, final connection with the father, he points at you and says, you two, Peter and you two, come with me. So they went to the garden. He went into the garden to pray. It was so late at night, and they were exhausted. Peter, James, and John, they all fall asleep. And then Jesus comes out of the garden and wakes them up. He's like, can you not stay awake while I'm praying? You have no idea what's about to happen to me. And I'm in there praying to where my blood or my my sweat is like drops of blood. I need you to stay awake. Don't give in to temptation, Jesus says. So he goes back into the garden, prays for a little bit, comes back out. They're asleep again. Doesn't wake them this time. Goes into the garden, prays for a third time. This time when he comes back out, he wakes them up and he says, my hour has come, but you three rest. Go ahead and get your sleep. I can't imagine that scene going from my mom's trying to position us to your right and to your left. Now mom understands what's really happening here. We're chosen to come and pray with you. Just this whole thing is just so deep. But let's go back a few hours to that scene when Jesus is breaking bread and passing around, around his cup. Take that wafer, if you will. I always like to say that, you know, here at New Life, we don't believe that anything supernatural or mystical happens when we take this wafer. This wafer is just a symbol of the broken body of Jesus, that his body was broken for our sins. So let's take that wafer in our hand. Let's pray for that. Father, thank you. Thank you, Jesus, for allowing your body to be broken for my sin. No longer do we have to bring sacrifice because you were the sacrifice. You allowed your body to be torn and broken for my sin. I accept that today. We accept that today. And for that, we say thank you. In your name, amen. Let's eat. Likewise, the juice symbolizes the blood of Jesus that paid the once and for all sacrifice for our sin. Let's pray for that. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you that this juice symbolizes the blood that you spilled from your body that covers my sin, past, present, and future. The once and for all blood sacrifice, the covenant, the promise between us and you. And when you, do, when you did that, we accept this. We believe that we are back in relationship with the Father. Thank you, Jesus. We love you. We surrender to you. We accept your poor blood for our sin. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's drink. Let's sing this chorus a couple times before we dismiss. Would you stand? Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Let me just say this before we go. In the messiness of the questions of our lives, the four lessons, again, that we can learn are, number one, that God is in complete control. Lesson number two, I can come to him in humility. Lesson number three, I can ask him what's really on my heart. And lesson number four, I can trust what he says.
Just want to say thank you so much for being here this weekend. Hope you have a great day. Don't forget some of the announcements that we made earlier. If you want to sponsor a kid to go to youth camp, make sure you go see Pastor Tito. If you want to help out with Apricot Fiesta, go see him as well. Uh, If you came prepared to give, we want to say thank you so much uh, for helping move the mission of New Life forward uh, with your with your gift, whether you give online or you give through the app or you give physically. We have giving stations located at our exits. You can drop into that. Also, if you're a guest with us, don't forget the free gift that we have for you. And if you are a lady, we have a cookie for you, all right, that you are not allowed to share, all right, with anybody except for me, all right? Hey, we love you guys. Have a great week. We will see you back here next Sunday. Pastor Dave will be live with us. Thank you.